0: My name is Luke Curry Richardson. I'm 32 years old. I'm a proud Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander man. My bloodlines run through many clans throughout this country. On my father's side, I'm a Yalanji, a Jabokai and a Miriam man. On my mother's side, I'm a Mananjali and Bachelor man as well. Uh, I'm based here in Sydney, but my, I guess my journey has taken me through most of the east coast of Australia. I was born in Cairns. I did my primary schooling in Brisbane high schooling in Canberra, university back up in Brisbane, and then ended up here in uh, Sydney. So yeah, my life growing up was a really, really privileged life. You know, I I grew up with both my parents in the household, both really hard workers. My father has been in the public service. uh, Well, both have retired now, but uh, my father's been in the public service since he was 18, you know, and he's worked his way up. My mother was more, I think I get the uh, free spirit side from her. She, she worked many jobs, you know, from owning a video store with her sister, uh, indigenous housing, disputes, a whole, a whole array of things. Uh, I played a lot of sports with my brother. Uh, competitiveness with my little brother there was, was, was uh, endless, endless battles, I guess. So, um, yeah, played competitive, competitive basketball as well. Um, represented my territory ACT at at national championships and and whatnot and didn't really get into the dancing side of things till I was about uh 10 or 11 where I started to learn more about my traditional Torres Strait Islander uh heritage by uh, via dancing the traditional dance aspect so yeah a really a really great life you know and and being able to see um Can's Brisbane, and Canberra and how they all kind of shaped and, and molded me to who I am today. So yeah, my grandmother, she got me... She pushed a lot. She, try, she tried to push um, the importance of cultural dance. You know, there's a photo of me dressed up in the female regalia because that's what she had as, as a uh, Torres Strait Islander woman. So I'm here in the, the pretty lays and, and whatnot. And I didn't really understand the importance of culture till I hit a certain level when I was about 10, and I was more surrounded by it in Canberra of all places, you know, the Torres Strait Islands up north, far north Queensland and Canberra, very different kind of climates and, and um, I think 3,000 kilometres apart. And, yeah, the hesitation to it was that men don't dance. I grew up in a society where, in Western society, where dancing was seen as weak or... or um, yeah, as a softer kind of if you it wasn't a manly thing to do dancing. But then I started to dive into the cultural aspects of dance, you know, with my indigenous heritage and seeing that dancing is is ingrained in our DNA. It, it's it's who we are. It's how we teach, it's how we tell our stories, it's t- how I tell our past. It's how we pass on knowledge to our next generation. It's how we keep culture alive, especially in this day and age when a lot of that is being, you know, slowly filtered out of, of society. So, I looked through not only my First Nation heritage, both Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander heritage, but also, you know, the Maori, the Hawaiians, the the First Nation, uh, Turtle Island, America, Canada, people, Samoa, and so on and so forth, and grew a lot of strength from there. You know, I could never imagine people saying, you know, the the Maoris, the All Blacks, doing the haka dancing are soft by any means you know so I try to get out of that stereotypical western ideology of how dance was for um, for the soft for you know you were less manly if you were a dancer and then when I moved to Canberra I was surrounded by it with my cousins and and uh, my uncles and aunties and every family gathering it was just like the elders, the the parents and stuff like that. And then the kids would go and dance and do their hip-hop ciphers and stuff like that. So that's how I learned that side of stuff. But then we would come together and, you know, we would all island dance or they would all island dance and I would watch. And I felt I, le- I felt left out. So this, my grandmother, my nene, she would always be telling me, you know, come on, we've got to learn, you've got to learn these stories, you got to learn this. And then we moved to Canberra, moved away from my grandmother. It was now my aunties and uncles. And they're like, come on, Lukey, your turn to get up now because... All my cousins were doing it besides me. So uh, sure enough, small steps um, started taking, taking lessons, you know, and by, by lessons it was in a back shed with my uncles and aunties every, every Wednesday or after school and then on weekends sometimes and then my two-week school holidays were taken up with cultural, cultural practices, learning, learning dances, learning songs, learning cooking, learning how to make the, the props and so on and so forth. And then we would tour, so when it came to NAIDOC weeks and so on, um, we would be on the, on the road, you know, and, and performing in the middle of winter, in grass skirts, half naked, in front of my, my school peers and so on, so it was a, it was, that, that's something I cherish a lot, actually, being able to connect to that cultural aspect while living away from my traditional countries. It's really important to me, and who I am today, yeah. May, uh, to be honest, like when I was in primary school, I remember being bullied. You know, there's a very, um, there's a very distinct memory where a new guy, I think his name was Josh, a new, new white kid came to school and he had a cream bun at lunchtime and I was sitting by myself and he made the remark, he put his cream bun on his face and he said, look at me, I'm an abbo. Oh. And um, this, is, this, is, this is my first memory of racism. And from there, I, I felt like I didn't have many friends in primary school. I had a Turkish friend who was born on the same day as me. I had a Filipino friend and I think I had one other uh, white friend. Everyone else was family. So from primary school, I I knew that my circle was going to be close and I didn't really worry about friends at that stage, you know. It wasn't so much about how many friends I had. It was about the people that actually knew who I was at that, that small time. So when I went to jump into, and I think that's another hesitant, like why I hesitated to dance at that age, at such a young age, because of the bullying and stuff like that and the racism that those young kids learned. Um, it wasn't until... Yeah. It wasn't until I was surrounded by my family that were doing it and the people that I actually cared about that helped me not care about anyone else's thoughts and opinions, you know, when it, especially when it came to cultural aspects of life and, and dance. Like, I didn't care about being the cool guy at school. It wasn't. It wasn't a thing, you know. For me, it was basketball and then it was the cultural aspect of dancing and my, my, um, my role in my community, I guess. So um, I, don't, I don't think I was ever, and some people might dispute this, but I don't think I was ever chasing being the cool guy, you know. I never had the the cool gears. I never had like the slick back hair, which is ironic now. Um, yeah, I wasn't the trendy one by any means, you know, and it was just the importance of culture and basketball at that, that age. <laughs> Yeah, growing up all, all the way through grade seven through to probably I was going to say 18, you know, is was a professional basketball player. Um, ideally, NBA first. I grew up, uh, My one of my closest cousins is Paddy Mills. He plays in the NBA for the San Antonio Spurs. And um, yeah, I was always trying to follow, follow in his footsteps. And it was just like that. That was a cool thing to do. You know, you had the sneakers, you had the money, it was the fame and glory and uh, I quickly realised that that's not going to happen. You know, it's not, it's not going to happen. And at, and at 18, it was like, you've got to make your decision right now, you know. And in Canberra, everyone kind of goes high school straight into a public service graduation, graduate program. And it just filters like that. So all my friends and, and family filtered straight into the public service. And that's not what I wanted to do. I grew up with Patty, I grew up with another cousin, Tim Cornforth. They both represented their sports at the Australian level, representing their country. Uh, Tim with the Wallaby Sevens in rugby. And that in itself kind of inspired me to be able to do more. Tim's sister, she was a dancer with a youth ensemble called Quantum Leap. And um, she was like, come over, come try contemporary dance out. And I was straight away, I was hesitant. It was still that um, traditional dance was great because I could see the representation in strong males dancing, not only in my culture, like I said earlier, with all the Pacific Islands and so on. Um, but contemporary dance was a whole new thing. This is tights, this is ballet. This is now what I was thinking, going into the negative stereotypes of being a sissy and being, possibly being bullied. Um, she brought me along. She's like, I'm not taking no for an answer. You like, you like the, you can perform. You've got this presence on stage. Come along to a class and see how you like it. I went to one class. A bit hesitant, I auditioned straight away the following weekend and I got, I got into this youth ensemble and started to chip away at this, this goal that was now Bangara Dance Theatre. Didn't know what dance was, but I knew what Bengara Dance Theatre was and who they were and what they represented for Indigenous people in the contemporary arts scene. Not knowing what a contemporary art scene was, but knowing how important that institution was for our people. So I was like, all right, if I'm going to audition, if I'm going to dance, this is the goal because I don't want to be stuck on camera behind a desk. It's just not a life made for me. I need to represent my people just like my two cousins, those people that are around me, and I need to do that on, on the world stage. So I wrote it down on list. It was like Opera House in five years, Bengara in six or something like that, or, or four. And it was by 2013, I was writing Bengara 2013. And uh, I managed to audition. I got the... Quantum Leap, now now known as QL2. I then went on after that year to audition for Nays Dance College, which is up in Gosford. It's an Aboriginal Islander Skills Development Association where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people go and dance and act and get out of their communities and learn, learn a bit more about that side of things. Went up there for two years. I did that and I auditioned for a mainstream contemporary course, Bachelor of Fine Arts and Dance performance at Queensland University of Technology. And I got into that as well. I um, never expected to go to university, terrible at school, very low, low grades besides sport, very stereotypical black guy. And um, I got into university and I'm here I am going up and competing with people that have been dancing since they were two, since they were in dancing all their lives. And here I am, the guy that picks up dancing, contemporary dance at 18 years old and struggled. Struggled a lot up there, you know, not only with the dancing aspect, but with the theory aspect as well. It was, uh, and also, I guess, the ideologies of what dance means to the Western society. My body wasn't a thin, balletic, flexible body. I didn't fit that mold of what that's supposed to be. Uh, And and at that time, I don't think they really accepted how I moved or how I learned or anything like that. They didn't really know how to take care of people that didn't grow up in that industry. So that was a bit of a tough one for me. And my third year, I started to think about quitting. I got to the maybe my third month, I was in trouble with my lecturers, I was falling behind. I was uh, not doing really well in my dance classes, thinking I was like level one, level one for four semesters. And then hopping into my last two semesters, they put me in pre-professional year. So I would jump from level one to like level four, and just was I wasn't surviving at all. And I get a call to come down to Bangara for a traineeship. And there was like that light at the end of the tunnel kind of thing. Like I was like, I'm done, I'm quitting. And it's like, nah. You're you're supposed to be dancing. You're supposed to be telling these stories at the perfect time as well. So Two weeks later, I'm in Sydney. (laughs) Sydney, um, starting my traineeship and learning off my idols. So it was crazy, yeah. There wasn't a connection with the the school at QUT, but there was NASDA, it stands for National Aboriginal Islander Skills Development Association. That's like the feeder school to Bengara. It's kind of where Bengara came from back in the day when it was formerly AIDT and all of that. So um, when I was there at NASDA, I, I did call Stephen to ask about a few of Stephen Page, the artistic director of Bengara, and I asked him, what do you think I should do? You know, I don't, I'm a leader here at NASDA, and I don't feel like I should be because I'm only learning how to dance now. And he's like, oh, you, you just want to leave because you're not getting the spotlight. And I was like, well, that's actually total opposite. I'm getting too much. I need to be guided, and I'm not being guided here. And he's like, well, maybe you should try out an audition for QUT. Um... And they kind of kept their eye on me from there, you know. So that that was where that kind of connection for me happened. Yeah, I mean, oh man, coming to Sydney was... Um, I always kind of, back then, I referred to Sydney as like the New York of Australia, you know. The people come and chase dreams here. And it was, I guess it was, and to some aspect, it's, it's still a little bit of a shock here and there. So, um, you know, growing up, first born in Cairns and then to Canberra, you know, the next closest is Brisbane in there. Um, it, it was a big shock, just knowing how chaotic it was for, for me, and I didn't like it for the first four, four or so years till I did make a trip to New York City and realised that Sydney is quite small in comparison to these mega mega cities you know around the world. Um, but what was nice at the time was that the community of what was Bengara dance, what is Bengara dance Cedar was a cl- cl- close-knit group. We're all from different parts we were from all different parts of Australia without our families. So that's kind of what kept me going, the bond that I had there at that company. So yeah. So getting into paid work, I think I worked at Full Locker beforehand and that was okay. This was the first time I I guess what I would classify as my real, my first real job, my first full-time job, um, Monday through to Friday or Tuesday through to Saturday. How were you? At the time I was 23 turning 24 uh, after the second night uh, of opening night on my first ever professional performance, my first professional show. Um, and I'm, cons- I'm thinking, yeah, I'm making big money. I'm making $750. Okay, I'm like, yeah, let's-. And I'm living in Sydney. I'm just loving life and I'm not saving anything. I'm just like new shoes. Every tour, I was buying new sunglasses. I lost a pair of expensive sunglasses at the bottom of a river one day, kayaking. It's okay, I went and bought a new pair I'm like, $750 is not that much money. Like It is to some, I don't know. get me wrong, but I thought I was like the big baller millionaire and um, traveling the world. And yeah, I really got a wake up call when um, Stephen was saying I wasn't doing too well. So I still, it was interesting to find out that, you know, I was at Quantum Leap and I, was, I felt like I was working hard then. And then I went to Nazed and I was like, okay, then you have to step up from working hard there and then you work hard here. And you go from NASA to QUT and you're like, okay, now you gotta keep stepping up. And all these levels of stepping up, your idea of working hard changes with your environment and your level of I guess, expertise in your field as well. So I had to really make that change to go into my next contract with Bengara to really go, nah, I deserve to be here. So um, I think a lot of things changed within that year. I, I broke up with my, my girlfriend at the time because I just needed to focus on work after I got that news. I moved out. I started to live by myself um, and really try to focus on eating my Pilates, my, my workout regime and dedicated myself to this art form wholeheartedly. I gave up basketball, which is my first love, I say. Um, and the focus was dance. It was, and in, in, the, in the, for the first time for a long time, it was dance and it was, it was work related. Now it was like, here we go, like, I need to solidify myself in this industry. Um, in 2013 I feel like I did that so we had a choreographer by the name of Daniel Riley and I felt like that piece really embodied who I was as a contemporary indigenous male in today's society and the challenges that we face you know I think society always wants uh, the mystical outback Australia Aboriginal anything else is not a real Aboriginal when in fact everywhere is Aboriginal land you know the city Blacks are same as the outback blacks, you know. There's no differentiation there. It's just that some have been more hit differently with colonisation, and now I'm exploring that within a work directly involving who I am in my life experiences. And I think that's where I really got I solidified myself in in that company, but also in the dance scene as well. Yeah. Uh, I always had, you know, the very first camera phones, I was pixelated, I don't know, I think it was like 3200 Nokias or something like that, I was always recording my my two cousins that I said earlier throughout the piece, and we were always having a laugh, um, freestyle raps, dance battles, whatever it may be, nothing, it was always about documenting at that early stage these memories that we were having, because we knew that we weren't going to be together forever, we were going to go our separate ways, and that was a really important moment for me. And I think that's where it came from. You know, um, uh, I didn't really pick up the camera again till maybe midway through my dance career at Bangara, sorry. But again, it was also about documenting those aspects of, of, of my life. And uh, like I said, and as an Indigenous male in, in today's society, that was never actually my practice to do that. It was like, I need to show these kids, like my kids, these things, just like any photographer does or anyone with a camera does. And it wasn't until I walked into a gallery on Oxford Street and it was a exhibition, sorry, by Aunty Barbara McGrady, an indigenous photographer here in Sydney. And I felt, thought to myself, like who's doing that for our generation, for my generation, you know? Ani Barb does a lot of the protests, a lot of the sporting events. She's done everything, and I was like, "Who does that for us?" You know, like I think I can try and do that. You know, and I took my camera to all these opening night galas and uh, tech rehearsals and, and rehearsals and stuff like that, side of stage, and I was taking photos of um, of my peers and my dancers, and I thought I was pretty good. I look at them now, I'm like, they're trash, but I'm like, this is great. Like I can, I love, I love this, and I started falling in love in love with it. As a photographer, as an artist of photography, not just a person with a camera, I was like, I think I could try and do this properly. And my dad bought me this stock, really bad Canon, like really base, like base level stuff, kit lens and stuff like that. And that was my gear for maybe five years, just taking it to Lake Air and Mongolia and all across the world. But it was it was my pride and joy for a long time. And then I was about to leave, and I was like, well, I don't want to dance. My goal wasn't to be a contemporary dancer. My goal was to dance with Bengara. I've done that now. So now what am I going to do after? And I was like, I was 30. It was 2018, the end of 2018. And I was like, okay, so I'm leaving. I need to save up money. I need to buy a camera. And the goal was to actually become a YouTuber or a, a vlogger. So I bought a 6500, Sony a6500, and with the goal that I was gonna be doing a lot more video than I was photography. Video was a lot of hard work, I think personally, it's all the editing and buffer, I, 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 that's, that's tough, it's tough. So um, I found myself still doing video, but taking photos and people really connecting with the images that I was taking. And I was like, ooh, it's like maybe I try still juggle both, but maybe focus more on the photography side of things. Um, I bought what I thought was my a good 50 50 uh, mil portrait lens it was still a kit entry level lens and um, started taking portraits and I was like I'm loving this a lot and people were really engaged with it I was like all right here we go this is my new career now like now I'm going to be with the focus of documenting contemporary indigenous life on all aspects that's dancing that's arts that's um, the protests that I do that's the the um, music scene, it's, it's all aspects of life that I can get into these nook and crannies. The biggest thing for me is for Indigenous people, my, my, my people to have solid, solid photos of themselves or imagery of themselves at these protests. You know, we have these companies that take photos, of these newspaper companies, and I'm not too sure what the licensing is to that, but you always have the, the, the watermark across it, which is fair, I understand that but for me when it's my people i think they need to des- they deserve that 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 image in that time it shows a part of history it shows the fight it shows the struggle that they have to show to their kids so make them understand the battles aren't over yet or the battles that we went through during our time you know my parents have done that with me and i've seen that imagery and it kind of influences what i'm taking now as well so The big thing for me is if any of my Indigenous people see a photo of themselves that I've taken, they get that full file, no charge or anything like that. They do do whatever they want with that because I think that's a huge part of documenting Indigenous life in this country. So that way they can't wipe us out. They can't taint our image. And I'm telling history from our side side of history, I guess. So, yeah. That was a big goal to be able to tell and represent and diversify these images from a black photographer not through the white lens but through an indigenous lens and and show you what world is like for us you know so, and and try to show people the beauty in our culture and beauty in our people and how I see my people in my culture not how others see it no I just did a, I just did a, a post this morning actually, and the last, the last line of it is, um, white people see me as an activist, black people see me as a leader. I don't identify as either. And that's a big thing, you know, I don't, yeah, I, I, I don't find myself as an activist. I don't, I see people like, we got Uncle Coco War, Warburton, Warburton up up in Brisbane, and we got, we got these strong black people that put their lives on the line and for me, that's how I see activism, like true activism. Of course, activism can be can be a multitude of things. I'm an artist first that has political content or that contains political content, which is my life story. So I actually don't think I'm doing anything groundbreaking by any means necessary. I'm just speaking my truth. And my posts are more like my journals. If I keep it in, I'm going to go crazy. And that's what the scary thing is, is that... I've got a I've got a small following on Instagram that has come from just my my truths and the stuff that I need to let out because if I don't I'm gonna go crazy. It's either letting it out on the gram or me paying for a uh you know a counsellor and and debriefing there. So yeah, it's it's a tricky thing to navigate these worlds, you know, where people are looking for a leader and people are looking for an activist and people I'm just like, no, 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 no. I'm just a black man navigating this world, speaking my truth, and um, whatever you identify me as, that, that's okay, that's on you, but just letting you know that I don't identify as either. Kind of story. I'm a storyteller first and foremost, and I don't differentiate dance, photography, poetry, uh, videography. I think they're all the same things. and in, Aboriginal people are the oldest living storytellers, continuous storytellers in the world, 65,000 plus years, I don't see what I'm doing uh, as new. It's ingrained in my DNA. And instead of um, rock art and song and dance, well, I'm still doing dance technically. Uh, I'm doing it with new, new mediums and new platforms. And uh, that's just inherited. I, don't, I didn't learn how to, I just think we fine, fine-tuned our skills. You know, it's, it's something that's in our DNA. Basketball. Basketball for me, the, the, love is, um, the love is there again. So I wasn't really allowed to play when I was a professional dancer because if I got injured, there's my paycheck gone. Um, I'm finding love in it again. Not the competitive side of it, but the, the art of what basketball is. Everything is a rhythm, you know. So um, I, I, I find that more relatable to dance as well. So um, the movements in, in basketball or sport or the plays that they run is choreography. So, um, for me, it's basketball and to be, able, be able to connect with, you know, the other men that love the same sport, be able to just sit back and unwind and watch a game together and kind of just think about the game or think about putting the basket through the hoop or, yeah, so that that's what I kind of do now, you know, but I don't think I really ever switch off. I think when I walk out that door, I, I I'm inherently a political statement, you know, a proud black man walking these streets and, that for me is, is, is a lot of things, you know. So there's days when I don't leave the house at all. I'm quite an introvert. But uh, when I do leave that, that, uh, that safe space, I think people are gonna make, like, they're gonna notice. And I'm gonna make sure uh, I'm the best representation I can be walking out that door so people can, people will look and acknowledge that uh, I'm here. <laughs> what do I see for myself in the future? Um, to be honest, I'm not too sure. It's a day-to-day thing for me. It's, it's. Um, I don't want to look too far in the future to to, not be able to live here in this moment, I guess. I think I need to focus on the now and doing as much as possible to help my people in, in whatever aspe- aspects that is. I'm trying to redefine what influencer is for me. Uh, I absolutely cringe when I hear that word that I'm an in, uh, influencer or an indigenous influencer. Because I think we lost what influencing actually meant lot along with, along with social media, you know. Influencing for me is my mum and dad, my grandparents, my uncles and aunties. Not someone that's trying to make me buy a bikini or facial products, you know. So how do I use influencing or influencer uh, the status to my advantage or to my community's advantage, you know. A lot of paid promotions have been turned down because I don't see why I deserve something if they're not going to give something to my community. And that's a big thing for me. Like, why would you deck me out in clothes but not donate 10 boots to a kid in, you know, in Outback Australia, wherever it may be, you know, those low socioeconomic um, clusters that uh, run rampant through my community. So that's a big thing for me. So how do I use my, my profile for the better without just telling a message? Anyone can tell a message. But how do I really use that for, for, for good, I guess? Um, but also with the photography side of things. I hope that there's gonna be some exhibitions in the future. We're in some, some talks with a few galleries. Um, I just need to get the first one underway. I need to learn from that experience and, and see how that is. Um, is putting on an exhibition scary or? No, not for me, I think it's important and it's needed. Um, I find the way that I've been able to succeed so much is finding gaps in, in the market where, non-Indigenous, uh, where indigenous people aren't being represented. So um, I find that there, there are a few of us out there. There's a few Indigenous photographers that do, do exhibits and exhibitions and stuff. But um, people that are my age with my view and, and my, my talents and stuff like that or my, my skill set, sorry, I, I don't think that's being told from my generation. So I need to put that out there. Um, I'm not too worried about what the greater population think. I more care about what Indigenous people think. And that's the biggest thing, you know. It, Non-Indigenous people have been trashing my my culture for, for all these years, you know. We're kind of unfortunately used to that. There's not much more that they can say about us that is gonna damage us anymore. We've been brought up with thick skin now. So when it's showing the beauty of my people, I can't be scared of that, because that's an important thing. And once I get scared of that, that's almost when oppression starts happening, and they start suppressing my art, my voice, and my people even more so I almost feel like it's uh um like I, it's my duty to do that to be able to use my skills um my equipment to be able to put my people on a pedestal so that this country can see yeah.